Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. This fall, we are studying Genesis, the story of us, and I hope we'll get you thinking about an old story in a new way. next few weeks, we are going to be studying together the book of Genesis. I hope we will see it in a new way because I believe that Genesis, particularly Genesis chapters 1 through 11, are among the most important passages of scripture in our Bibles. And I like to call this Genesis the story of us. But to get there, I want to start in another place and it's with the slide that's behind me. In the city of Rome and at the southeast corner of the Roman Forum, there is an arch. It's a triumphal arch built in the late first century to celebrate the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers. There is a relief inside of this arch, which you can see here, that depicts soldiers carrying away the treasures of the temple. It is remarkably accurate to the point that this beloved menorah is also the emblem of the modern state of Israel today, and it is a marker of what was lost in the year 70 when Roman soldiers took away everything they had within the house of God, except they didn't. <laughs> they took the gold, but they didn't take the words, and this is what our lesson will be about in the next few weeks. They took the treasures, but they didn't take the treasure. They took the money but they didn't take the poem. So this is what I hope that we'll do together is find out what these words mean for us and why they have more value than silver and gold. I want to read just a few words. These are the first words in the Bible. Hey, if you've got a table Bible and you want to open it up, we're going to do a little highlighting in these Bibles too for those of you at tables. So uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter one. It's on page one. That should be easy to find. Okay. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We've grown up with this story, right? We've heard it so many times, we've probably got it down in our bones. Well, let me tell you something about Genesis that you might not know. It has to do with the Hebrew language. Hebrew is a word-poor language. This is something we'll need to remember as we study this together. Hebrew is a word-poor language. What does that mean? It means that there are 8,000 Hebrew words. There are a million English words. Now, they're not all our words. I mean, hibachi is not our word, uh, but we call it an English word because we use it. But there are 170,000 commonly used words by every individual speaking English. 8,000 Hebrew words versus 170,000 commonly used English words. This means that by its very nature, the Hebrew language, and by extension, Genesis, is poetry. It has to be. I'll give you an example. In the beginning when God created, that's six words. In Hebrew, it's only three. Bereshit, baruch, Elohim. Three words. It means beginning, create, God. 
That's the way the Bible begins. Beginning, create, God. There's some gaps there, right? Shades, nuance. I mean, all poetry can mean more than one thing. The word baruch actually means create, but it also means to allocate or distribute. It could even mean destroy. The words mean different things, and there's space in between. Beginning, create, God. Could mean that God created the beginning. It also means that in the beginning, when all was null and void, God created something beautiful. It could mean that the beginning is a backdrop for the story of the creation. It could mean all sorts of things. I remember when I was a minister in Decatur, I used to park next to a Baptist preacher at the hospital in the clergy parking spots. He had a big LTD, and it had a, and it, yeah, and it had a, a bumper sticker on the back that said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God said it. Bang, it happened. Yes, he's close. He's, I think he's close to it. I think that's right. I think that's what the poem is saying. But he also had another bumper sticker that said, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. And I'm not sure about that one. Okay. Okay, this is lesson number one. By nature, the story of Genesis is a poem. Hold that thought. Now, for those of you with table Bibles, I want you to turn to page 967. You've been on page one. We're going to go to the very end of the Bible. We're going to go centuries later to uh, an obscure little letter called 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy claims itself to be written by Paul. Some newer scholars think that it was written by a student. It doesn't really matter for our purposes here. So we're at the other end of our Bible. We have someone, Paul or a student, who also knows the book of Genesis and uses it. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then he says some other things. Here's why I want you to look at this today. The phrase inspired by God, please highlight that in your Bibles because that's a study Bible. Inspired by God is actually a word that's only used one time in a thousand pages of scripture. It's called theonustos. Theonustos. And we translate it inspired by God. But what it really says is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. See, St. Paul or one of his students writing this letter, they knew the book of Genesis and they knew the story, the poem in Genesis chapter two, where God formed a man from the earth and he breathed life into him. That's beautiful poetry. Because what that means is that we're, we're not merely hair and skin and a skeleton and, and blood and those sorts of things. We're not a machine, but rather we're God breathed and the breath of God in us. That's our hopes and our dreams and our loves and our passions and our tears and our relationships. All those, those are all the things that make us alive and those are God breathed. Well, what this letter writer came up with is because he knew the book of Genesis, he also said that these words are God breathed. In other words, it's not merely a poem, but rather it's a poem made alive by God, and it's why we call it holy. So that's the second lesson we're going to learn, right? It's not merely a, a poem, but it's also a, a holy story about us. This is a fun fact. Yes, I made that slide. Uh, the word Bereshit, which is the first word of the Bible, the very first word of the Bible is the word beginning. We say in the beginning, but the word is beginning. Bereshit begins with the letter bet. It's the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the old rabbis and the old sages noted that isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't begin with the first letter of the alphabet, which would be Aleph. It begins with the second letter of the alphabet, which means that there is a limit to what we can know about God. There's a limit to our knowledge. There will always be mystery when we read Scripture together so that the book of Genesis cannot be a science book. It cannot be 
a history book. It cannot be a magic book. It can only be a conversation with the God who made us and knows us and loves us so. Bereshit baruch Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Let's remember what we've learned so far. It's a poem. It's holy because God has breathed upon it, right? It's made alive. And third, it has more value than silver and gold. Still, that begs a question. Where'd Genesis come from and why? Well, we've got to go back to history to learn this story. Uh, That's the Babylonian lion, by the way. And in the summer of 586 BC, some six centuries before Jesus was born, after a two-year siege, the Babylonian army pierced the walls of the city of Jerusalem and sacked the town. Uh, Modern archaeology reveals charred rocks to see that they pretty much destroyed everything. And like the Romans who would come later, some five centuries later, uh, they also uh, took all the treasures out of the temple and destroyed the house of God that had stood there for 400 years. It was a nightmare. Uh, The king and his army did escape the city walls. They were later captured. The king's eyes were gouged out, but not before he murdered his own children. So that would be the last thing he would remember seeing. You can read all about this in 2 Kings chapter 25, the whole sorry tale. And as if that weren't enough, they took God's people away in exile to live in a faraway land. And by the waters of Babylon, they sat and wept, the psalmist wrote. And Linda Ronstadt sang. (laughs) That's okay. It's a cool song. Uh, But by the waters of Babylon, they sat and they wept when they remembered what they'd lost. By the waters of Babylon, they also sat and they wrote the Bible They got busy. This is where the Bible got written down. For a thousand years, they told stories to their children, but now they needed to write them down because their their Jewish children were losing their Jewishness, which was the whole point of the exile. I want you to imagine Hebrew children going to Babylonian public school and coming home and learning the origins of the world. The Babylonians had their own stories. It was a story of, of defeat and destruction and conquest and death and war, and it's how they saw themselves and they saw the world. It gave them warrant to kill and to take, and children were learning. And so the parents went to their sages, their rabbis, and they said, we need our story written down so that we don't lose it. We need our story that we've been telling mouth to mouth, generation to generation, about a good earth and a good God who loves us so. And thus was written the book of Genesis. Now, I have on your tables here a little piece of paper that I wrote down. It's a form that I made where I've divided um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I think I gave all the sheets up. There's some sheets passed around. For those of you off on the side, if you've got some on the tables, if you hand them over to our friends on the side of the room. I don't, I don't need one. I've got one. But you just kind of share. All right, what, what this reveals is that Genesis is a compilation. Now, remember what we're learning. It was written in Babylon during the exile. It's also a compilation of things. And we can see that it's written by more than one author because we've got two stories of creation at the very beginning. I think what we tend to do, if we think of Genesis at all, is we conflate two different stories. We put them all together in the same story, but they're actually quite different. So on the sheet, and I would love it if you just take this home and stick it in your Bible. Uh, that'd be my fantasy if you do that. But, um, and and my, my writing is hard to read, so I'm going to read this out to you. But Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is the first story of Genesis written by one author, or one group of authors. The second story is the second chapter of Genesis written by another author. And look at how they're different. In Genesis chapter one, humans were created three days after plants. Genesis chapter two, God created man before the plants. Genesis chapter one, men and women are created together. 
Genesis chapter 2, God makes man out of the dust, and then the woman comes later. Genesis chapter 1 is positive. It's optimistic. Genesis chapter 2 is pessimistic. Genesis chapter 1, there's six days of creation. Genesis chapter 2, there's only one day. It's all created. Genesis chapter 1, humans are made in God's image. Genesis chapter 2, there's no mention of God's image. For those of you who have a pen on the table, if you want to write this down, there's also something different. God in Genesis chapter 1 is called Elohim. Remember the first three words? Bereshit, Baruch, Elohim. That's a generic word for God, E-L-O-H-I-M. Genesis chapter 2, God has a name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, a word that the Hebrew, faithful Hebrew people won't even write or whisper. Well, the reason for this is because Genesis chapter 1 was written by their clergy, Genesis chapter 1 is intended to be a creed. It has majesty to it and rhythm to it. It's intended to set up the idea of the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested from his creation. When God rests, we rest. The Sabbath's a cool idea. We rest with God. We rest alongside God. God rests with us. And so Genesis chapter 1 was set up for worship on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. The reason why they call God Elohim, these writers, is because through the first five books of the Bible, they wanted us to understand that God reveals his name to Moses on the mountain. And so after the revelation of his name, Yahweh, they call God Yahweh, along with the second writer, which is not writing a creed, but rather writing a drama. It's a drama of our human story. It's a drama of our failure to be who God made us to be. It's a drama of recrimination. It's a drama of sadness. And it's also a drama of grace. Genesis chapter 1 is a creed meant to be read in church. Genesis chapter 2 is a story to be told by the bedside. They're two different stories. So now what we're learning is that Genesis is not only a poem, but it's a compilation, and it's holy. Now, even though Genesis chapter 2 is a drama of the human story, Genesis chapter 1 says something very, very, very important about us. For those of you who have table Bibles, turn back to page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, says something very, very important about us. So important, as a matter of fact, that Jesus quotes it in his best sermon ever. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says that humankinds are made in God's image. Here's the sermon as it happens to Jesus. It's the last week of his life. Stories remembered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's an important story. His enemies are closing in. Uh, Jesus' time is really very short, and they send... They send someone to trick him. Uh, they send someone to ask him a question that will do him in once and for all. There is no escape from this question. The man walks up and he says, teacher, you can almost hear the hypocrisy dripping right out of his mouth. He says, teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Okay, this is a dangerous question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes, they got him. But if he says, no, you don't pay taxes, they got him. It's, it's a no-win no kind of question. And Jesus knows this. He knows it's hypocritical. He knows it's a trick. And so he says to the cleric asking the question, give me a coin. Give me a denarii. Now, temple coins, by the way, and this, this was the only place in the Roman Empire that let them do it. Temple coins were called aniconic. They didn't have an image on them. They didn't have a person's name. So it's highly ironic and probably a little embarrassing that the cleric had a coin with the emperor's face on it. He wasn't supposed to have that up there on the temple mount, but he did, revealing their hypocrisy. And to his chagrin, he hands him a coin, and then Jesus says, whose face is upon it? He says, Caesar's. Remember the story, right? 
Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, look, I've known this story since I was a little boy in Baptist Sunday school, and the way that I figured it means is that render unto Caesar your taxes and then you give God money to the church. You, church gets some things and government gets some things and just that's how it works. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 127 right here. It's his best sermon ever. He quotes Genesis chapter one. What he says is, whose image is on the coin? Coins were the mass media of their day. They told you who was in charge. They told you who you belonged to. Kings even reflected the gods of their nations. They reflected the power and the might of their gods. And so the emperor's face on that coin said many, many things. And then Jesus says, who are you stamped with? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. You see, we are a coin stamped in God's image. Who are you stamped with? You're stamped with the face of the king. All of us are made in the image of God, and it comes from the book of Genesis. And if you keep reading Genesis chapter 1, not only are we stamped with God's image, but we're also asked to do things that God does, to rule over creation. And that may sound kind of high-handed, and it may sound a little arrogant for us to be rulers, but remember, just as the king would represent their gods, we represent the creator of the cosmos, and we're asked to do what God does with his world. Love it. Treat it with compassion. Treat it with creativity, generativity, kindness, love. We are children of the king. And what else can we do but to reflect the king's glory and presence in his world? And this is what the poem's about. I have my own story. I had a soup kitchen when I was a young man before I went to seminary. I was so proud of myself. I'd take an hour off from work and I'd go over to a poor part of Montgomery and People lined out the door. I, people gave me food. I would, I would have these big cans, big industrial cans of green beans and peas and slices of ham, stuff like that. Whatever people would give me, we'd heat it up, serve it out. Hungry men and women were around the corner eating that food. I was so proud of myself. I shouldn't have been. Um, I, had a, I had a roll of, of, of paper towels up on the steam table uh, that people used for, for napkins. I, I didn't think to get people to give me cutlery. I just had... And just had some plastic forks, and then they could just tear off a paper towel. And, uh, and of course, we know in some rest restaurants that's fashionable. Uh, but, uh, but, but I had a roll of paper towels for them, and I'm, I'm serving out food. And, and this, this very dirty man, not clean person, very poor person, I don't know if he was homeless or not, but I'm going to tell you he was an angel. He looked me in the eyes, and he said, really? No napkins? I mean, really, you know what I'm saying? You, you're going you're gonna to give me food? You're going to feel good about yourself, boy? And you're not going to give me a napkin to wipe my mouth? You're not going to give me a napkin? You're not going to give me the dignity of having a napkin? I, I, I've never forgot it. I was stunned. I was ashamed. I, I, I went out and got napkins. <laughs> we are all children of the king. We all reflect the creator God. What else can we do? but love each other the way that God loves us and to love his world the way he created it. You begin to see the power of the poem, the power of the story, begin to see why it's holy. In 1965, a rabbi named Joseph Soloveitchik wrote a book called Lonely Man of Faith. He did another thing with Genesis chapter one and chapter two, which I think is absolutely brilliant. It's a quick read and it's a, it's a, it's a good read, but a, a synopsis of the book basically runs like this. 
In Genesis chapter one, God makes a man, Adam, and he's the, he's the doing Adam. He's the rule over the earth, Adam. He's the name the animals, Adam. He's the, he, he puts him in creation and gives him something to do. Genesis chapter two, God makes a man. He's the being Adam. He's the walking and talking in the garden, Adam. He's the, he's the in love with God, Adam. He's, he's the being Adam. And what Joseph Selovichik said was that you have to have both stories of creation. Both of them are a yes. One of the things about the Bible that you got to remember is that we Western people, we tend to think in linear logic, okay? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. We like everything to tie up. The Hebrew writers, the writers of this poetry, they had no problem with things contradicting themselves or things being different. if, If we think in linear logic, the Hebrews thought in block logic. They thought in blocks of ideas. I'll give you, I'll give you an idea. You can find this everywhere, but... How about in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, which one is it? You know, did God do it or did he do it? The answer for Hebrew would be yes. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, in Lamentations chapter three, which is a go-to lesson when we have funerals here, and it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. It's a popular lesson, but it says, although he causes grief, he will have compassion on those, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Okay, God, which one is it? Do you cause grief or do you have compassion because you do not willingly afflict or grieve anyone? The Hebrew answer is yes. <laughs> exactly. All right, so which one is it? Was the creation made one day or six days? Yes. <laughs> and so Joseph Selovichik takes this block logic and he applies an important idea. You have to have both stories, a being Adam and a doing Adam, because they're the two halves of our psyche. It's the two halves of our religion. It's the two halves of our soul. If we work all the time and we don't, and we don't give it to God in prayer, then our church will merely be the best run nonprofit outreach center in the city of Birmingham. Well, Okay, but that's not faithful. I mean, we got those around. We've got United Way. We've got other, we got other ways to do outreach. You don't need a church. If we only pray and we neglect the hungry at our door, if we only pray and we can leave it up in our heads, wait until heaven when we die, that's not good enough either because God wants us to be his hands and feet in the world. Jesus asked us to be his disciples, to go all in, which is what our lessons are about uh, this morning in church. So you've got to have a balance of the two doing and being. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are a story of who we are and who God is. A napkin? Yes. Our mission, our mission, is to be an open, to be an open, inviting and serving, inviting and serving, community, community, in which Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, is the center of our life, is the center of our life, and the gospel is modeled, and the gospel is modeled, and proclaimed in word, and proclaimed the word and sacrament and sacrament. Good job. I was like 